This is an ABC podcast. The basic contract between a reader and her writer is, uh, I think, it's one of mutual respect. Hi, I'm Claire Nichols, and this is The Book Show, where I'm bringing you a series of conversations with recent winners of the Booker Prize, which is arguably the most prestigious fiction prize in the English-speaking world. In 2017, George Saunders won the Booker with his debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. And this book is really innovative. It tells the story of the death of Abraham Lincoln's son through a strange cacophony of living and dead voices. He spoke to the ABC's Sarah Konofsky about the book that same year. Apparently, when Lincoln was president uh, in 1862, his son, uh, Willie, passed away. And this was kind of his, you know, beloved child, uh, the kid who was most like Lincoln himself. And what got my attention was there in the newspapers at the time, they reported that Lincoln had supposedly uh, visited the crypt on several occasions. And there was some, you know, mentioned he had interacted with the corpse in some way, maybe held it or maybe stroked the hair. Uh, so I heard this about 20 years ago, and it just kind of stuck with me uh, until, you know, until now. And I kind of avoided the subject. And then it, eventually you think, well, you know, if this thing is so persistent, I better try it. You're being tapped on the shoulder by the literary muses and you can't run too far, I That's guess, That's right. At a you, point. you can run, and then you, but then you <laughs> run the risk of being a, an artistic coward and you have to turn and face them. <laughs> There's a wonderful line about Willie um, from one of these purported historical sources, which are one of the elements in this book, and it describes Willie as he was the sort of child people imagine their children will be before they have children. Yeah, that's <laughs> that was right. great. Yeah. He, he was also apparently kind of naughty. He, he you know, he would break things, and uh, they'd go into the president's office and spill ink all over the desk. So he was kind of the perfect kid. He was adorable Feisty. and smart, but also had a little bit of, of fire. Yeah. Well, when you say that, that this idea of, of, just as you describe that, it's already so moving, this idea of a father going in and, and touching, being physically close to the, the body of their dead child. I mean, I think that alone in itself is such a moving kind of starting point. But I'm really glad, George, that you didn't write a novel from inside Lincoln's head, because I can't see how that would be possible without it being, I don't know, weirdly saintly, or, or it would have been, that would have been a really different sort of book. And actually, you're, you're enacting this sort of artistic process that I went through, because that was my first thought. And then, you know, you, one of the things I do is I kind of imagine the language of a book before I start. And when I did that one, it just as you, as you say, it felt so kind of, uh, well, I mean, the joke version would be, you know, four score and seven minutes ago, I did walk into yon graveyard. And so, so, so my, what I learned over the years is if I'm not excited by the voice of the story, then I just don't touch it because you can't, um, I just can't get there if I don't have that kind of – it's it's a real visceral, joyful kind of feeling that, oh, this will be fun. I can do mm. that in voice. So so that was one of the reasons I put it off because most of my work is in uh, contemporary times, first person, kind of funny ostensibly. And I just couldn't find a linguistic way into into the story. So that's one of the reasons I put it off for so long. Mm. Well, when you say you needed to find the voice, I mean, that's interesting because one of the, you know, the, the most obvious aspects of this book is that it's so multi-voiced. There's so many different voices speaking. So was that the sort of voice that you found for Lincoln and the Bardo? Yeah, in a sense, it's a, it's a, it's an, 
an avoidance of voice in a way because when I realize that there are going to be two or 300 people in the book, suddenly then you're not going to be able to make a distinctive voice for every one of those people. So then it takes a bit of the pressure off. Um, but I had, you know, it's funny the way, you know, when you talk about a book, you tend to reduce it. You, t- you tend to um, make it a tidier process than it actually was. But one of the, the big uh, turning points for me, I got a letter from a former student and he was kind of joking about the fact that I hadn't written a novel. And he said, but he said, um, I think if you ever did write a novel, it would be a series of monologues. Hmm. And he mentioned the story of mine that, that worked on that principle. And again, something in me just lit up at that. And, you know, it's always this feeling like I could do that. That's almost the mantra. I could do that. Um, <laughs> so then, and then, so he said that, and I had kind of forgotten that years ago I tried another novel in a graveyard. And it was uh, right after the chat line thing came out, you know, maybe in the mid-90s or whatever. And I, I, I love the idea of a kind of a chat line among the dead. And so I'd written that book, but it didn't have a real, any kind of forward motion, so I just abandoned it. So his, my student's admonition, and that thing kind of just exploded in my mind, and I thought, oh, there you go, you know, a, a, a graveyard full of, full of ghosts. George Saunders speaking to Sarah Konofsky. And you can hear how much George enjoys talking about his process. He really is one of my favourite people to talk to about the act of creation. In 2018, I interviewed George about his follow-up to Lincoln in the Bardo, and it was about as far away from that book as you can imagine. Uh, This tiny little book, Fox 8, it's a fable written in misspelled English. George, we'll get to the character of the very charming Fox 8 soon, but when I was reading this book, I was thinking about kindness, and I know that kindness is a real guiding principle for you. It's something you've talked about before. Can you be a kind writer? I think you can. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you can be an alert, truthful writer, and that kind of ends up being something like kindness, I think. You know, uh, I don't think, I, I think one of the the tricks of writing is to never try too hard to have a program or to teach a lesson, but, you know, to invent a fictional situation and then really pay attention to it over the months that it takes. And um, for me, the way to pay attention is just to rewrite and to constantly be looking for ways to kind of squeeze the, you know, the nonsense or the BS out of the the narrative. That, I think, uh, amounts to something like my definition of kindness. So you're saying... You don't set out to have an agenda with your writing, but this book is kind of a fable. So can't can't you have a lesson associated with a book like that? I think you can, but I, I, I my experience has been the best lessons are the ones that the book teaches you. You know, you you think your book is going to be about this, and in the course of doing it, the book corrects you essentially. And the, um, I'm kind of a not the most sophisticated thinker, so if I start off with a you know a sort of moral plan for the book. Usually it's underwhelming. You know, I might I might achieve that goal, and it's sort of uh, disappointing to everyone. But if I if I lower myself into the book and kind of really pay attention to what it's trying to tell me, I often uh, trick myself and end up saying something deeper than I even knew that I knew. So what did you start with with Fox Eight? Uh, I you know I had written a column for the Guardian in the UK, and I had two just very very light humor pieces. One was uh, from the point of view of a, a dog, kind of a really sophisticated, um, almost like a college educated dog, and then the other one was a uh, kind of a, a mock uh, course evaluation from a high school student that was full of misspellings and kind of um, 
inadvertent stupidities. And I just really just thought, I'll just try to combine those two. So I came up with the idea. At first, I think of a talking dog who can't spell, and then the dog became a fox. And uh, it was kind of, you know, the the book, the first portion of it is pretty sweet-hearted, and he's a kind of a nice fox. And so I, I, I had a draft at one point that was just for kids. It was a very sweet, very happy ending. And so that was the first sort of foundation of, of the book. Uh, and then it turns out that, uh, you know, I sent it out to kids' book editors here in the States, and they were like, well, first of all, we can't publish a kids' book that's full of misspellings because you'll, you know, corrupt an entire generation. And then also the, the length was wrong. So then I, I kind of went back to the drawing board and thought, well, if I wanted to take this foundational work and allow myself to uh, consider it sort of a, a, a book for grown-up readers, what would I do? And then it sort of took a dark turn and became a whole different thing. Mm. Uh, so we meet at the start of the book, Fox 8. He's writing a letter to we humans. Now, George, in literature, traditionally, foxes are, are kind of cunning or sly. I wonder why you wanted your hero to be a fox. Uh, I think, you know, honestly, I have to confess that my my methodology is so intuitive and it kind of, uh, I do a lot of rewriting and a lot of playing and experimenting. And I think he was a dog and he just, you know, he was, he just wanted to be a fox. I don't really know why. I, you know, I, I could sort of manufacture a fancy answer. But for me, the, the strange principle that's guided my whole writing career is that if I put the conceptualizing and the planning aside and just have fun repetitively, the, you know, there's a kind of a, a uh, a wisdom in it. So he, I don't know, he just wanted to be a fox. I can't really say. But he's very offended by this, by your, by your characterization of him being sneaky. He, he, he feels like foxes have gotten a, a bad rap over the years. Yeah, because foxes have a great deal with chickens, for example. They say, you make eggs, we take the eggs, you make more eggs. You know, if we, want, if we want to eat you, if you don't run away, well, you agreed to be eaten. That seems pretty fair. Yeah, he's kind of a capitalist in that way. He's, he's got some, some idea. Or maybe he's like a Republican fox. It's interesting you say that because I know you've written a lot about capitalism in your nonfiction and fiction writing, George. And, you know, we were talking earlier about kindness. Where does this concept of kindness fit with a concept of capitalism? Well, you know, th- to be honest, I kind of blundered into this whole kindness business, and uh, it, it's very inhibiting. You know, like you can't rob a bank or, or anything, say anything rude. You can't. Uh, I'd ri- I'd written this speech for a, a graduation ceremony here in the U.S. about kindness, and really, it was just a kind of a, a very direct, non-literary confession that you know, at 55 years old or whatever I was, um, when I looked backwards, I didn't really have a whole lot of regrets. Even when I made big, stupid mistakes and humiliated myself, I didn't really regret it. But I did regret the, you know, the many times when, uh, you know, through anxiety or, or uh, ego or self-preoccupation, I had neglected to be kind in certain situations. So that was, uh, that speech went viral. And then all of a sudden you're kind of tagged the kindness guy. <laughs> so, um but I, you know, I think if you think, here's, here's how I see it. If you see kindness as being whatever attitude results when you think rationally about our situation here on earth. So in other words, if we look around, we see that we mistakenly think that we're separate from everybody else. We think we're superior to everybody else. We think that our, our life is a story that's uh, playing out and everyone else is watching. Uh, all these ideas are actually incorrect. Uh, a lot of those ideas have a confluence with capitalism that basically says whatever you can get, 
is yours and whatever you get you sort of automatically have gotten through virtue so that can if if you believe in capitalism too strictly as a kind of a, a moral system it can turn you into a very delusional person so i would say kindness is just to say well uh capitalism isn't actually the most just system so let's make sure and uh treat it with with ritualized kindness and gentleness to make sure that the that the monster doesn't get out of the cage so in Fox 8, George, we see a very kind fox uh, who maybe has some capitalist <laughs> attributes <laughs> encounter the human world. Um, he can actually speak human or human, as he says. How did he learn to speak English? Well, the book tells us that he uh, used to spy on a human family. So he'd sort of watch them reading bedtime stories at night and listen in through the window and kind of pick up what he could. And uh, he, it means he has some really interesting turns of phrase. I like all the dudes and likes <laughs> that are in his yeah, he, language. Yeah, he's been listening to the kids, I think, and maybe the TV a little bit. And um, then I, I guess the idea is that he also can write. He sort of taught himself to write. He's had a lot of time at that window. And so the uh, one of the really fun things about the book, and actually what made me want to write it and finish it, was the he, he misspells everything. Uh, so that is sort of an interesting, like a semiotic challenge where the writer gets to use the spelling as an additional tool to pull the reader in. So if you, you know, if you take a phrase, um, you know, I was, I was hearing some sounds and then you experiment with different misspellings, you'll find that some of the misspellings are more interesting than others. And uh, part of the, the, the sort of new contract you strike with the reader is I'm going to give you this misspelled sentence, you decode it, and there's a little pleasure in that, I think, you know, if, if you do it correctly. So it's kind of just one more trick to pull the reader into your story. Yeah, it, I found it really made me slow down as I read, George, because, you know, it is a short story, but I had to say a lot of the misspellings out loud to figure out what they mean. And when I read, I was fast and nated, I went, what is that? <laughs> and then I went, oh, it's fascinated. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's such, a, it's such a silly thing. And, you know, it, it can sometimes, uh, it could easily be, be facile, you know, but I think part of the fun was to say, well, let's look at the, the basic contract between a reader and uh, her writer is, uh, I think it's one of mutual respect. So if, you're, if you pick up my book, what I want to communicate to you is that I, I value your intelligence and your experience in the world and your good heartedness. And now we're going to play a little game together. Uh, so I think little challenges like that can be fun, but from the writer's point of view, you have to really not phone it in. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I worked really hard on that book. It's, it's a fun, I think, kind of silly book, but I worked so hard on it line to line, just as hard as I worked on the Lincoln book, because basically a writer, you know, lives or dies on the um, extent to which in each phrase he communicates his respect for the for the reader. And that takes, for me anyway, it takes a lot of repetition, a lot of time. Do you have to know where the line is? Do you have to know how far you can push an audience? Because, oh. you know, th this book is from the first, uh, the first line of the book is Dear Reader, R-E-E-D-E-R. -E -E and from there, the misspellings and those challenges keep coming. Do you know where the line is, how far you can push us? I think that's, you're exactly right. That's sort of the ongoing job. With every line, I have to sort of say, where is Claire right now? Mm. You know, is she, she's probably getting a little annoyed with this spelling. Okay, let me make a joke that will make it worth her while and therefore bring her back into the fold. You know, this, this is the same problem with the Lincoln book, which it's got a kind of unusual form. And I mean, every day I went into the writing room thinking, okay, where is my ideal reader? Is, is she with me? Is she against me? Uh, you can sometimes have a reader too much with you. You can be uh, not challenging the person or not uh, almost, you know, sort of 
making it so easy that it would feel like you're not aware that she's on the other end of the conversation. So I, I would say that in a nutshell is the whole writing game is to know where the line is and where you are with respect to it. And also, I think sometimes to understand that, you know, it's kind of like I haven't dated in, in like 500 years, but from what I remember of dating, you you might on a date start to lose somebody. You know, you might uh, start to be boring or you might start to be too obtuse. That doesn't actually mean the date is over. But as long as you acknowledge where you are, you can bring the person back into your, your orbit. So I think likewise with writing, if, a, if for example, like the beginning of the Lincoln book is difficult, I think, mm. um, part of your job is to know that your reader is getting a little fed up. Then if at some point you redeem yourself, you get kind of a double double helping of redemption because they were doubting you and you brought them back. So I think the whole thing is really a very intimate conversation with another person. And I think the difference between good writing and not so good writing is in good writing, the, the writer really elevates you, the reader. I, I think very highly of you. In writing that's not so successful, you can feel that the, the writer has put the reader beneath her and is condescending or preaching or lecturing or recycling jokes and so on. And I think that's what makes for a bad relationship. George Saunders, the 2017 winner of the Booker Prize. And to hear conversations with other Booker winners, including Damon Galgett, Margaret Atwood and Bernadine Evaristo, head to the ABC Listen app and follow The Book Show. I'm Claire Nichols, and this show has been made on the lands of the Wajak Noongar people. Bye. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 